Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's early November 1900, and as we heard last week, the mercurial Boer commander Christian de Wett has just avoided being captured along with Free State President Steyn. The brutal fight at Boerteville saw the Boers lose 25 killed, 130 captured, another 30 were wounded. De Wett also was forced to abandon four Krupps field guns, a pom-pom and two artillery pieces captured from the British at the battles of Colenso and Sanna's post. British losses were also serious, 38 men killed or wounded. De Wett had escaped, but the incident sharpened his mind about how effective his scouts had been, or rather hadn't. Fortunately for him and his men, their scouting proficiency was to improve once more, despite losing the indefatigable Dani Taron, who'd been the driving force behind his highly skilled point men. A major defeat for the British awaited in a month's time, as De Wett recovered from the shock of losing so many men and all his artillery, and his scouts regained their composure. But now, it's time to direct our gaze back to the east of Pretoria, where the 14-year-old schoolgirl Frieda Schlossberg's family had suffered the effects of the climate in the lowlands near Ronostokop. Her story was being repeated over and over as the civilians caught in this war tried to rebuild their lives once the conventional war ended and the insurgency began. She and her mother, father and a brother had been prevented by the Boers from leaving Renostokop for their small holding near Pretoria at a town called Bronkospreit. They had applied for a permit to move from the Boer General Rasmus in early October and it was now a month later and they were still refused permission to travel home. Freda's mother was losing weight. The family was also running out of food and other basics. The heat at Renostokop was now getting excessive she wrote in her diary, owing to its situation close to the bushveld and the summer approaching in grim reality. Fever and other sickness prevailed. Most of our cattle died through eating poisonous grass, which is plentiful in that part of the country at this time of year. Their Boer neighbours had departed weeks before, heading to the highveld with its moderate climate and fresh grass. The only neighbours left were sick or English, and Frieda reports that many had died for want of medicine. Food was the main problem, along with drinking water. And they had run out of necessities, like candles and paraffin. Luckily, there was a moon, she writes. To sit on a veranda during evening with the moon above may sound romantic and pleasant when read in a book, but it was not so very charming in real life when evening after evening one has to live in utter darkness. The family decided to press the matter with General Erasmus and drove to his lager around five hours away in their carriage, hauled by the surviving mules. They found the general and Mr. Schlossberg laid the family's case before the commanding officer. The water is muddy at Rulnostokop, he said, and full of insects. It was undrinkable. The Boer general listened to the complaints, then turned to Frieda's brother, Robert, and said, are you the man who warned one of my commandos of the approach of the Australians? Yes, Robert replied. Frieda then continues the story. The general smiled and said, Would it not be inhuman of me to keep your mother and father here? So General Erasmus signed the permit for the whole family to go home to Bronkospreit with the mules and cart, as well as one wagon load of goods from the house and 25 head of cattle. They were ecstatic. Home beckoned. When we left the camp, 
Our joy was boundless, she wrote. At last relief had come. At last we could return to life and civilization. At last we could leave this life of fear and anxiety behind like an evil dream and come to safety. Still, they had a two-day trek ahead through contested countryside that was full of danger, and they faced an additional problem. The family no longer had an ox wagon, an oxen that would train for the yoke, and no Boer would risk his wagon and oxen to go into British-occupied territory for any price. Finally, an English farmer, who was one of the few still living in Ronostokop, offered to lend his wagon and oxen to the family, but wanted a guarantee of £300, a fortune in 1900. Mr. Schlossberg had no choice but to sign the guarantee and just hope that the valuable wagon and animals would not be seized by the British as they moved from Boer-held territory through no man's land to the areas held by Lord Roberts's troops. They were forced to leave much behind as they stuffed goods onto their wagon, including two warehouses full of forage, mealies, saddles and plows. They departed at four in the afternoon, reaching the Boer outposts as it grew dark, but were allowed to pass without having to show anyone a permit. That's because the burghers had been told to expect the Schlossbergs. After halting for the night, the next day they continued on their way to Bronkospreit. It was now that the full extent of the violence of the war came into view. On the road there were many burned houses and ruins of former dwellings, which the British had burnt, Frieda wrote. There was not a sign of life for miles and miles, nothing but black ruins and endless stretches of bare, dry felt. At the end of the second day, in the distance, they saw two small figures, dim and uncertain. These were two British soldiers on a scouting mission from Bronkospreit, on duty at the furthest outpost. They came up to the cart, shouted, and the family stopped. After a few questions, they were allowed on their way and negotiated a few more roadblocks before they arrived home. Her other brother, Joseph, was waiting for his family at the house in Bronkospreit, and the reunion was emotional. Finally, this family that had been split up way back in December 1899 were reunited. This tale was being repeated by black and white throughout the country in November 1900. Meanwhile, in the northeastern Transvaal, the Canadians and Australians in particular had been busy since mid-October. To these men, it seemed as though the solemn annexation ceremonies in Pretoria and the departure of some of their colleagues only seemed to encourage the Boer commanders to renew their offensive. Lord Roberts and Kitchener, or Bobs and Kay as they were known, had ordered the scorched earth policy to begin in earnest and the man charged with scorching the eastern Transvaal area of Belfast and driving Boer women and children from their homes was the much-admired General Smith Dorian. He was highly regarded by the Royal Canadians because of his active service throughout the war. Kitchener's orders in particular had been clear and direct. Women whose men were still fighting were to pack their belongings, leave their homes and join their men in the felt. When both tired of the insurgency, they would both surrender and then be allowed back onto their land. Under this policy, three Canadian expeditions set out at the beginning of November 1900, one from Neutgedacht and two from Belfast. Their orders were search, expel, burn, and all three were to focus on the Carolina region south of Belfast, which was controlled by large Boer commandos. These expeditions were to fail spectacularly. The initial 
expedition began on the 1st of November, when under cover of darkness, Smith Dorian led a large flying column of 1,200 men out of Belfast. As usual, the column did not so much fly as crawl with enough transport, supply and ammunition wagons in tow to last five days. Their target was Witkloof, around 35 kilometres south of Belfast, close to the Komati River. Smith Dorian divided his column into two wings, and in both the Canadian mounted units served as the advance guard. The right wing under Lieutenant Colonel Spence made a wide detour towards the southwest, while Smith Dorian took charge of the left wing that moved southeasterly. Both were meant to converge at Van Vake's Flay, which was six kilometres short of Wittkloof. Things started badly and then went downhill from there. An icy fog descended on the men as they moved off in the dark, and then it began to rain. It's already spring in South Africa, but when the weather changes, temperatures can drop precipitously from 25 or 28 degrees centigrade to 5 or 6 degrees in the space of an hour. The driving wind and torrential rain then began to pummel Smith Dorian and Spence's columns. Then the weather worsened, if that's possible. Lightning flashed and it began to sleet, icy wind whipping the men on horseback. Because it was so dark, the lead units dropped small pieces of phosphorus to mark their trail, but it became increasingly slippery until eventually accidents began to take their toll. In one case, a horse slipped and fell on a driver, who was then dragged along under a wagon and had both legs crushed. Eventually, at midnight, Smith Dorian called a halt and thought about giving up the expedition. But he had sent Spence off to the southwest, as we know, and he had no way of communicating with the lieutenant colonel. It was a terrible night for all, men and horses. An officer called Lessard wrote later that, I have never, nor ever could have imagined it possible to pass such a miserable night. For most, it was the worst 24 hours they'd spent in Africa, and it was going to get worse in the coming days. They saddled up just before dawn, it was still raining, and the men could hardly move. Even the horses appeared frozen and were shivering. Smith Dorian sent out an advance guard of Canadians under Sanders, who took a wrong turn and were forced to seek shelter in trenches dug by General Buller more than two months before. A second detachment under Chalmers also found themselves separated. Then horrors, the Boers located them and a fierce firefight ensued. Chalmers was joined by Saunders, and the Canadians were outnumbered by the Boers, who were peppering their position with their Moses. Suddenly, Chalmers was shot and died a short while later. The artillery arrived and shelled the Boers' position. They withdrew. Meanwhile, Spence, who, as you remember, had ridden off on the right flank in a southwesterly direction, had arrived near the rendezvous point at Van Vake's Flay. They had also suffered terribly through the freezing rain the previous night, and then spotted the Boers on a kopje near the Komati River. Lieutenant King of the Canadian Dragoons smelt blood and charged the Boers, only to come under such heavy fire that he had to turn around and gallop back with the Boers in hot pursuit. Once again, the artillery came to their rescue, with two guns opening fire with deadly accuracy. It took only eight shells to clear the felt of the Boers. They began to retreat, when Smith Dorian's column then arrived at the flay. But both units were in a deplorable condition. Their horses were sick, the men were exhausted, and the dashing Smith Dorian decided to abort his expedition and head back to the warmth of Belfast.
He had succeeded only in prodding the Boers' beehive. They were determined to see the intruders punished. Almost the entire way north back to Belfast, they were sniped at and attacked in bursts. The bedraggled Canadians and Scots units had to drag their artillery through thick mud at times, and the Gordon Highlanders once more bore the brunt of the Boer attacks. In one case, 13 were shot as they watered their horses. But an American-made Colt machine gun was proving to be extremely deadly and kept up a constant fire which saved the Highlanders from being overrun by the Boers. This weapon was light enough for a single horse to drag it. The Colt Browning M1895 was nicknamed Potato Digger due to its unusual operating mechanism. It was the first gas-operated machine gun to be used in active service and launched in 1895. The Gordon Highlanders' Captain Lessard described it as most deadly and can be kept firing to the last minute and finally can be retired at full gallop with little or no chance of being hit as it offers practically no target. But it was the weather that really defeated Smith Dorian. The icy rain continued to lash his men as they staggered through the mud back to Belfast, Boer rounds ricocheting around their ears. Eventually some gave up and were placed in the wagons. The retreat turned into an embarrassing affair where it was every man for himself in no particular order. They had had no sleep for 24 hours. All military discipline collapsed. Their food had been one biscuit and a chunk of cold bully beef. Eventually the men made it back to Belfast where the local population stared in disbelief at the flying column which had been turned into a floundering column. The next day, Smith Dorian counted the cost. Forty dragoons were on the injured roster. Some had swollen arms and legs from rheumatism. The mounted rifles had been badly mauled. The Gordon Highlanders were in a poor state. Chalmers was buried later that afternoon. However, the tragic expedition didn't deter Smith Dorian. He was planning another to follow shortly, but had no idea that his failed attempt to attack the Boers at Wittkloof was merely a dress rehearsal for a far more violent skirmish in a few days' time at the Battle of Lidifontein. But that's for next week. Before we end, I need to explain what had happened to General Redverse Buller, the man who hesitated through the Natal campaign and eventually joined Lord Roberts' army east of Pretoria after marching all the way from Ladysmith, more than 500 kilometers to the south. He was fated as the man who had saved Natal and South Africa, nay, even the British Empire. At least, that's what his soldiers said, despite the publication of a report into the Spioncorp battle that was a disaster for the British. His superiors weren't as sanguine about his capacity as a leader. Lord Roberts thought of him as odious and frustrating, and the feeling was mutual. When Buller said goodbye to his men, though, at Machadadorp in the eastern Transvaal, they cheered him and cheered him again. One of the officers is quoted by Julian Simons in his book, Buller's Campaign, that... General Buller is a remarkably hardy man and can have as good a night's rest on the felt as Tommy Atkins. He does not favor garden parties at Pretoria when the troops are actively engaged, nor would he allow Lady So-and-so to volunteer as a hospital nurse for any base hospital in his division. That was a direct prod at Lord Roberts, who was prone to garden parties in Pretoria and whose wife had joined him in the capital and worked in a base hospital. 
However, as the hubbub over the large man with the barrel chest and matching moustache died down, the Spioncorp report would emerge once more later in November, and Buller would be blamed for the British losses in that battle. His wrath would be legendary, as we'll see. After Buller left, Roberts handed over his command to Lord Kitchener for the sweeping up process we've heard about in the last few weeks. The road ahead was not one of glory for these men. It was to be characterized by concentration camps, starvation of the civilian population, blockhouses, and the systematic subjugation of a people. It also reinforced Great Britain's role as an apparent bully, swaggering but inefficient. Right now we'll bid Buller adieu and end the podcast for this week. Please remember to rate the series on iTunes and you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye.